What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with the Federal Reserve kicking off its two-day policy meeting today as investor attention shifts from earnings back to Powell's policy playbook. And there's more than just rate risk. Wall Street adding a new debt ceiling deadline to its wall of worry as President Biden plans a high-stakes meeting with congressional leaders. And AI, it strikes twice in two very big ways, one of which is sending a certain stock down nearly 30% in the pre-market. The name to watch, that's coming up. Plus, tracking the fallout from J.P. Morgan's winning bid for for First Republic Bank and what it means for a sector that is already on the ropes. And then later, bracing for the streaming silence as the biggest writers union in Hollywood goes on strike. It is Tuesday, May the 2nd, 2023, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good Tuesday morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Hope your morning's getting off to a great start. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after a modestly lower session for Wall Street yesterday. You can see this morning pretty much muted. The S&P and the Dow both fractionally lower than NASDAQ, just ticking just a bit higher. We're also checking the bond market. Now, we're going to look at the yields in the bond market. They have been ticking higher as we get closer to this Fed meeting later today. Looking at the 10-year note, we're seeing that move about 9, 10 basis points higher than it was just yesterday. The two-year note also moving higher. We're also keeping in mind on this, the yield is above 4%, something we continue to watch. Also, that inverted yield curve, uh, a possible recession indicator as more and more people are calling for recession. But this morning, we're paying particular attention to the short end of the curve and a dramatic move higher in the past 24 hours. So take a look right here. We're seeing the one-month moving higher, the two-month moving 26 basis points higher. Also, the three-month yield above 5% moving higher as well, something that we continue to watch, this short end of the curve, but much more on that in just a moment. We're also watching the energy market, specifically oil. We're looking at oil continues to be below 80 bucks a barrel. WTI crude at 75.65, pretty much flat this morning. Brent crude, that's the international benchmark, also below 80 at about 79 and 40 cents this morning, fractionally higher. Natural gas seeing the biggest move higher, about three quarters of 1%. All right, time now for a check on the early action over in Asia. The markets in China, they're closed for a holiday. We also have the early trade over in Europe, our Germana Brissetti tracking the action overseas. Good morning, Germana. Frank, well, a lot of breaking news over here. Let me just bring you this headline inflation print. It has come in for the month of April at seven percentage points in line with estimates and a little increase from where we were the month before, which was 6.9 percentage points. But more crucially, the core inflation number, that is uh, inflation excluding food, energy, alcohol and tobacco, has actually come in at 5.6 percentage points, 0.1 percent lower than where we were last month. This is significant because, it, because finally it has shown that core inflation in the eurozone 
has peaked. And this on top of a survey earlier showing that banks have started to tighten access to credit even as demand for it wanes. So bank lending to your own companies and households has slowed again in March. And this probably boosts the case for a 25 basis point hike, not a 50 basis point hike at the meeting on Thursday. But another company that we're watching very closely today in Europe is BP. Profit at the company rose to $5 billion in the first quarter, beating analyst expectations. But the energy giant reduced its share buyback and said it is still committed to using 60% of its surplus cash to buy back stock this year. You can see the stock is down about four and a half percentage points. But on the flip side, in the banking space, HSBC has posted a pre-tax profit of $12.9 billion for the first quarter, a more than 200 percent increase on last year and above estimates. The bank also announced its first quarterly dividend since 2019 at 10 cents per share, as well as a buyback of up to $2 billion. So the reaction in the stock has been quite positive today, up more than five percentage points. Frank. All right, our Germana Brissetti live in our London newsroom. Germana, thank you very much. Let's now get a check on this morning's top corporate stories, including a new deadline day for America's borrowing capacity. Our Savannah Hanau is here with that story and many others. Good morning, Savannah. Frank, good morning to you all. That's right. President Biden reportedly calling the top four congressional leaders late yesterday for a May 9th emergency meeting at the White House to discuss how to avert a U.S. default. Now, this after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the U.S. could hit its borrowing limit by as early as June 1st. That's much earlier than expected if Congress does not act in time. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley is reportedly making plans to cut another three thousand jobs by the end of June as Wall Street looks to outlast the recent drop in deal making. Reports say senior managers are aiming to eliminate roughly five percent of staff, excluding customer facing advisors and its wealth management unit. Morgan Stanley employs roughly eighty two thousand people. And Vice Media is reportedly preparing to file for bankruptcy as soon as this week. The media company, whose assets include Vice News, Vice TV, Motherboard and Refinery29, was valued at $5.7 billion at its peak, but has struggled for years to maintain growth. And Frank, several reports say that it is still possible that Vice can find a buyer to avoid Chapter 11. Yeah, certainly something to watch. Really popular media platform. We also saw the end of BuzzFeed just recently. So changing media landscape. Lots of change. Yep. All right. We'll see you later on the show. All right. right. Time now to turn our attention back over the markets with investor attention now turning to the Federal Reserve. The central bank kicking off its latest policy meeting today. The Fed largely expected to approve a quarter percentage point rate hike. But the fresh market stresses stemming from the downfall of First Republic, providing just a, a new wrinkle for the Fed in its battle against inflation. The burning question for investors now is, is the Fed moving closer to the end of its fastest rate raising cycle in 40 years? Ahead of that decision, your next guest says that investors, they're actually front running the Fed. Mark Avalon, he's the president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Mark, always great to have you on. Good morning. All right. So, Mark, this morning ahead of this Fed decision, I know you're watching the VIX. We're going to show the VIX here in a second. The VIX actually pretty much at its lowest level so far in 2023. And you're saying that low level of volatility expectations is bringing back what you call the GERF trade. You're going to have to explain the acronym and what you mean. Well, GERF is greed eventually replaces fear, and it's a tale as old as time in the markets. 
Investors in this era have a lot of information at their fingertips. It's not like 20, 30, 40 years ago when you had to dig through massive amounts of, of newspaper reports to, to understand what was underneath the surface. Now you just turn on CNBC and you hear people say stocks turn near the end of a rate hike cycle. So everybody's thinking we're near the end of a rate hike cycle. They're flooding into tech stocks. They're flooding into interest rate uh, sensitive stocks, stocks that do well when rates lower. And you see what happened to the NASDAQ this year. We feel the investors are front running. The, the fear that we had last year has been replaced by greed. And we think tech stocks and NASDAQ trades, good for the long term, are a little overvalued right here. Yeah, NASDAQ up almost 17 percent year to date. So uh, as we mentioned, we're just one day away from that Fed decision, looking at the latest numbers, 92 percent chance of a quarter hike, bringing us to the rates to this highest level since August of 2007. How are you positioning ahead of this possible decision? And give us some granularity. What sectors are you overweight? What sectors are you underweight? Well, well, the Fed and interest rates are have been the headline driver for the market. And, and we all know that along with inflation. But underneath the surface, it's earnings, and earnings ultimately drive long-term stock prices. I think what we've seen with the regional banks and, and some of your, your headlines this morning about regional banks and the banking sector will underscore that it's going to be difficult for traditional banks to do well in this market. Uh, that means to us as asset allocators and people who look at where asset flows go, that non-bank financials are going to be the beneficiary. Look, mutual fund managers, ETFs have to have exposure to financials. And if you're going to avoid banks, where do you go? We think they go to insurance companies, uh, non-lent people who aren't lending to the consumer who are going to be sensitive to a recessionary slowdown. So that's why we like the, the IA case and, and the insurance sector over the banking sector right now. All right. We got to let you go, Mark. But one last question. Um, debt ceiling talks. Big deal. Not a big deal for the markets. Short term, a big deal. It always is. Gets a lot of headlines. We'll, we'll hear a lot of, of talk, trash talking out of Washington, D.C. But in the end, they'll come to a deal and the markets will look beyond it like it always does. All right. Mark Avalon of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Great to see you as always. Thanks for being on. Good to be here. All right. Still plenty more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that all investors need to know today. Also, how an 11th hour debt limit deal could impact the markets and your money. We have Ed Mills of Raymond James coming up with his instant analysis. Plus, AI strikes twice, setting this stock down more than 30% in the pre-market. Your mystery chart, that will be revealed coming up. And then later in the show, what J.P. Morgan's deal for First Republic means for the banking sector, also for those who fail to submit a winning bid. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The market doesn't joke around. So why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC.
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We're following a developing story this morning. President Biden reportedly calling the top four congressional leaders late yesterday for a May 9th emergency meeting at the White House to discuss how to avert a U.S. debt default. This after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned in a letter that the U.S. could hit its borrowing limit as early as June 1st. That's much, much earlier than expected if Congress does not act in time. And when it comes to time, it may not be on our side when it comes to congressional negotiations. Take a look at this. The House is off this week and as of this morning only has 12 working days on the calendar for the entire month of May. The Senate just 15 before deadline day. Democrats are insisting on a, quote, clean debt limit increase with no conditions, while Republicans are calling for spending cuts and passing a bill with $4.8 trillion in deficit savings over the next decade. Joining me now is Ed Mills, Washington policy analyst and managing director at Raymond James. Ed, great to have you here. Great to see you, Frank. All right. So let's start off with the big question here, Ed. What are we what's more likely? I don't know if you're a betting man, but what's more likely uh, a short term extension when it comes to the debt limit or an actual default? So, Frank, that's a great question. And I think we have focused in the markets on 2011 in the massive drawdown as these negotiations got really close to the brink. I'd like to remind folks about 2021. And we got really close, didn't have a deal. And then we punted for two months. And then we came up with a deal. I think that this is much sooner than Washington expected. This is absolutely a lot sooner than the market expected. As you mentioned, we have an emergency meeting a week from today. There's just not a lot of time. You add on Senate procedure, there's only time to do this once in the Senate, not to do it twice. So when we look at this, I'd say a very short term extension is the most likely near term to allow there to continue to be time to have the negotiations on the larger points of some of the fiscal reforms, some of the budget cuts, maybe some of the energy permitting reforms that Republicans want, trying to put default off the table, because this is really, especially for D.C., a very condensed timetable. All right. I think a lot of investors are breathing a sigh of relief after you just said that. You know, just I think it was last week, Goldman put out a note that the debt, the debt ceiling limit would be reached in July. So, again, June 1st is a big change from that. So let's take a step back. You just mentioned this meeting on May 9th with congressional leaders in the White House. What's on stake specifically or what, what things are on the table, I should say, and what's at stake specifically things that might impact investors? You, I think you just mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, some other things that might be on the table. Yeah, Frank. So I think the Biden position of there is only one way here of a clean limit um, increase is probably not the most likely anymore. Uh, Republicans, by passing their bill last week, were able to establish a negotiating position uh, in the Senate. All eyes have to be on Mitch McConnell. Um, as much as we used to focus on Joe Manchin on all of the reconciliation bills, we're going to be focused on Mitch McConnell because what he allows to occur in the Senate uh, is probably going to be the final bill. So looking at some of those provisions, I've talked to a lot of investors who are very concerned about the clean energy provisions that were in the Inflation Reduction Act that are being removed in the House version of the bill. I don't think that gets in the final bill. But yesterday you had Senator Manchin talking about needing to have new guardrails on exactly how that money is spent. I think those guardrails are more likely now than before. We'll right. also see some defense cuts or some other budget cuts potentially added to this bill. 
I think those will be false positives because Congress is probably likely to do whatever they want on spending, even after this deal. All right. So there's a few hot button issues here. I also want to mention ESG. You're saying ESG uh, considerations in the Inflation Reduction Act and other areas will also be on the table. Well, they're in the House bill. I don't think that the Inflation Reduction Act is going to get repealed at all. Uh, But when you look at the statements from Senator Manchin yesterday saying that the way in which the Biden administrations are implementing this, that that needs to be changed. We shouldn't allow uh, these tax credits to go to Europe, to go to Asia, that they have to really be about the United States. This is especially important for the electric vehicle market. Um, those type of provisions, I think, are part of the political off-ramp that gets, you know, provisions that get added to allow Republicans to support this and also get support from maybe a, a Democratic senator. All right, Ed Mills saying short-term extension, the most likely outcome. I think a lot of people have their fingers crossed, Ed. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Me too. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, your big money movers and MGM betting big on a bounce back in China. Our Contessa Brewer is here to break down those results. ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right. Welcome back to Wex. Time now for your big money movers, your major stock stories of the morning. And today it's all about the good, the bad and the ugly. I think you see the theme going on. Let's start off with the good shares of NXP semiconductors rising after the chipmaker top Wall Street's estimates for the past quarter and issued stronger than expected revenue guidance for the current quarter. The company CEO noting they are cautiously optimistic about the second half of the year as they navigate through a cyclical downturn in their consumer exposed businesses and that they continue to see strength in their automotive and core industrial businesses. You can see shares are up four and three quarters of a percent. Now to the bad and a very different story for shares of Arista Network slipping and extended trading after the cloud network company said one of its biggest growth drivers could slow down in the months ahead despite posting quarterly results and an outlook that both top Wall Street estimates. Arista's CEO telling analysts the company's outsized growth in the U.S. was primarily due to cloud's tightened spending like Microsoft and Meta, but they expect some moderation in customer spending in the coming months. And now for the downright ugly shares of Chegg plunging double digits on a warning that ChatGPT is threatening the growth of its homework helper services. You can see shares are down 44% this morning, marking one of the most notable market reactions to date to signals that generative AI is upending some companies and how they do business. Chegg, which makes most of its money from subscriptions, says revenue is in danger if students see AI chatbots as an alternative to paying and that the popularity of ChatGPT has been impacting their new customer growth since March of this year. Again, shares down 44% in the pre-market. All right, we're also watching shares of MGM Resorts slipping very slightly in the pre-market on the back of some strong first quarter results. Our Contessa Brewer joins me now with a breakdown of the stock and the sector. Glad to be joined by the maven of Macau, Contessa. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm going to have them put that right on my banner. Well, there is a lot for investors to like about this earnings report. To begin, Macau is just busting through expectations. MGM China reported first quarter revenues 
nearly 50 percent higher than estimates. And that all-importance earnings metric, adjusted property EBITDA, more than double estimates. It's now only 12 percent off the levels that MGM China saw first quarter of 2019, so pre-pandemic. On the call, CEO Bill Hornbuckle said it's one of the best quarters ever. He pointed out MGM has made a big jump in market share in Macau since the pandemic, from 9.4% to 15.4%. And he said he expects to keep that share because when the Macau government awarded a concession renewal, it's a kind of license to operate there, it allotted MGM a third more gaming tables. And MGM is taking market share with only about half of those additional tables currently in use. The company says it's also seeing a boost from its investment in attracting foreign tourists, mainly from other parts of Asia to Macau. But of course, Las Vegas has been booming. Domestic operations here, Vegas Strip came in with a record first quarter result for MGM Increased profit margin driven higher by revenue per available room. That average daily rate now is up 31% over last year. And they said on the call that bookings are up every month, year over year, all the way through November. Regional casinos, steady. MGM is expanding its international footprint, its European subsidiary. Leo Vegas is acquiring game developer Push Gaming. And then, of course, the big news, they are focusing on developing a new casino resort in Osaka, Japan. Truist analyst Barry Jonas out with a new note. He raised his price target by a buck to $58 and wrote that he sees an upside to the estimates while valuations remain undemanding. We may see a subdued reaction in the share price here because a lot of this news, we, we got gross gaming right. revenue results for Macau as a destination as a whole. Um, we already heard BetMGM reporting its earnings. So some of this news was already anticipated. All right. So we have a really big week of earnings when it comes to gaming casinos this week. We have Caesars. We have Flutter Group, which also owns FanDuel. Mm -hmm. Give us a sense of what you're expecting going forward. Okay. So we, we Caesars tonight will give us another view on the Las Vegas Strip. It may just reinforce what we've heard. Caesars has been very disciplined on its profit margins and its costs. And so it'll be interesting to hear there. I think analysts are going to want to know how they're doing on their digital side, what Caesars has done in terms of marketing. They're, right now, they're in fourth place in sports betting. We should hear from Penn, which has made an effort with Barstool. We hear from DraftKings later on this week. But the market leader is FanDuel in the United States and its parent company, Flutter, reports earnings tomorrow. Peter Jackson will join me on Squawk Box for an exclusive interview right after the earnings call. And we want to hear there what they're doing about market share. How are they investing that money and whether they see the customer acquisition costs pulling back somewhat? All right. Our Contessa Brewer, the maven of Macau. Thank you for that report. Thank you for being here in person. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. All right. Straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. It's not just Chegg feeling the heat in terms of AI. Folks in Armonk, New York, also growing increasingly concerned. The full story in just a moment. We'll be right back here on WEX. Around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we are just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. The Fed is in focus. Investors turning their attention to J-PAL and the latest Fed policy meeting and whether the central bank may be nearing the end of its rate hiking cycle. A full walk-up to that critical decision that is coming up. Plus, First Republic fallout. Markets continue to dig through the rubble of the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. As new questions emerge about the strength of the banking system as a whole. And hitting the picket line, thousands of TV and movie writers 
Set to go on strike for the first time in 15 years as the streaming boom presents a new hurdle for Hollywood and its contract talks. It is Tuesday, May the 2nd. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I hope your Tuesday morning is getting off to a great start. Let's pick up a half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. Bit of a muted start to the markets this morning. However, we have seen the Dow take a bit more of a move to the downturn since we started the show down now. It would look like it would open up about 50 points lower at this point. The Nasdaq just fractionally higher. The S&P just fractionally lower. This is Wall Street Chalks, a new debt limit deadline to its wall of worry, which already included tomorrow's likely rate hike by the Federal Reserve and a regional banking sector that's really been pushed to its limit. Okay, this morning we're also watching the bond market. We're seeing those yields just tick higher as we get closer and closer to that Fed decision. We're seeing the 10-year, the benchmark, move higher this morning. We're also seeing the two-year note move higher this morning, something we continue to watch. We're also seeing even more movement on the short end of the bond curve. All right, let's get a check on some of your morning's top stories, including the White House looking to add some new names to the Federal Reserve lineup. Our Savannah Hanau is here with those details. Savannah. Hey, Frank. Well, the Biden administration is reportedly expected to nominate Federal Reserve Governor Philip Jefferson to be the central bank's new vice chair. According to reports, Jefferson, who has been on the Fed board for just under a year, would fill the position vacated by Lael Brainerd, who left in February to become one of the president's chief economic advisors. And the White House is also reportedly looking to tap economist Adriana Kugler to fill the potential vacancy on the Fed's board with the Jefferson move. If approved, Kugler would be the central bank's first ever Latina governor. IBM CEO says he expects the tech, the tech company to slow or pause hiring for thousands of jobs that could be done by artificial intelligence. Speaking with Bloomberg, Arvind Krishna says roughly 7,800 positions could be handled by AI, specifically in back office or non-customer facing roles. Krishna added the headcount reduction could also include not replacing workers who leave the company. And thousands of film and TV writers are set to go on strike starting later today. The Writers Guild of America calling for members to hit the picket line after failing to reach a contract deal with studios. The writers have argued they have suffered financially as streaming has boomed, in part due to shorter seasons and smaller residual payments. The last writer's strike 15 years ago lasted 100 days and cost California's economy $2 billion, Frank. Wow, I didn't realize it had big of an impact. Huge. Yeah, for us, it just seems like our favorite shows aren't on. That's, but that's what we think about. Huge exactly. economic impact. Absolutely. Silvana, thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Turn now back to our top story in the Fed kicking off a two-day policy meeting today. It's on track to raise rates for the 10th time in its year-long effort to tame inflation. Economists believe that Jay Powell will hint the Fed is inching closer to a pause, but he won't send a clear signal that tomorrow's hike will be the last this year, even amid the ongoing banking crisis and a potential U.S. debt default as soon as next month. The CME FedWatch tool is pricing in nearly unanimous odds of a quarter-point hike tomorrow. That will put the benchmark rate at 5.1%, a 16-year high, and a full 5% higher than in March of last year. Let's bring in Ashish Shah, CIO of Public Investing at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Ashish, great to have you on. Good morning, Frank. So a lot of people are trying to position ahead of this potential rate hike. It's obviously um, almost uh, 100% odds there. We're looking at the CME FedWatch tool in the upper 90% of odds that we're going to see that hike. You're looking at the bond market right now, and you have a bit of a contrarian group, a lot of a contrarian view. A lot of people are looking at short-term bonds, but you actually believe the 10-year is the place to be 
right now before that decision. Kind of explain why. So we, we have a lot of uncertainty. And so we, we think that this is a great opportunity as we see a backup in yields to be adding longer term bonds into your portfolio. Reason is uh, it's going to be those longer term bonds that really offset losses in your stocks if there's economic uncertainty and the economy slows down. All right. So that's one one thing that you're looking at. You're also looking at international investing. Um, you gave me some some things that you're looking at, specifically Europe. So when you look at Europe uh, equities, they're actually outperforming U.S. equities in most ETFs. Why do you think that Europe has more room to run after already outperforming the U.S. so far this year? One of the things that we've seen is that Europe is lagging about six to nine months behind the U.S. in terms of the covid recovery. And so when you combine that along with valuations that are 20 to 30 percent cheaper, uh, we think you you end up with a, a room to run here. So one other thing we're looking at is the, uh, you know, the threat of a debt ceiling default, obviously the issues in the banking sector. In your mind, why isn't the Fed paying more attention to this? Why do we still believe there's just so much likelihood of that quarter point hike? Look, I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty, but in the meantime, there, there's strength in the U.S. economy. And so the Fed wants the economy to slow down, um, and that's why they're going to be hiking here uh, in, in the coming meeting. But that uncertainty can hit from from out of the blue. I think the debt ceiling is definitely going to be kind of the next big test to the market. It's one of the reasons why you want to have your overall allocation back to your strategic allocation. And for most people, that means adding bonds back into your portfolio. Okay, what about equities? As we look uh, to a possible rate hike decision tomorrow, where are you putting money to work when it comes to equities as far as sectors and maybe even specific names if you have them? Yeah, so so I, I think you want to start with parts of the market that haven't seen kind of the strength of the rally that that uh, the S&P has. And I, I'd start with small and mid caps. Uh, they've really been lagging. They're uh, priced for a decent discount, probably about a 20 percent discount to long term averages versus the S&P 500. And then within that, what one of the things we like doing is instead of trying to pick what the economy is going to do, go for secular growers. And so, uh, you know, one of the secular areas of growth has been s- security, uh, whether it's in the real world or in the cyber world. Two of the names that we like there are Allegiant. Um, which focuses on in-world security, but uh, automation of that security. So automatic do- bonds, uh, uh, automatic doors, automatic uh, windows. Uh, and, you know, on in the cyber world, we like CyberArk. All right, sir. I mean, something to watch. Security is a big issue, both in the real world and on the digital world. Ashish Shah of Goldman Sachs, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. All right, turning to J.P. Morgan Chase and the fallout from its deal to buy First Republic Bank. And it's more than $90 billion in deposits, $30 billion of which stem from that March infusion by J.P. Morgan and 10 other large banks. The deal appearing to be a boon for JPM's balance sheet, eyeing a one-time gain of about $2.6 billion and $500 million in new profit annually, excluding that one-time cost. But questions continue to circle this morning around that deal, J.P. Morgan's motives, and what it means for the other half a dozen banks that were bidding on First Republic well into Sunday evening. Joining me now is CNBC banking reporter Hugh Sun with much more on this story. Hugh, good morning. What's the latest? Hey, good morning, Frank. It's great to be with you. Um, so a day after this story has broken out, we have time. The dust has settled a little bit, and we, we kind of know the playing field. And it turns out that J.P. Morgan 
which I will remind you has uh, now, I believe, close to $4 trillion in assets, was going up against um, banks in this weekend auction that it absolutely dominated inside. So uh, some of the other, the other bidders in this final weekend uh, round of, uh, of, of this auction were PNC, and that was well-known, Fifth Third Bank, and Citizens. So these are all banks that are well below a trillion in assets. It's, it's sort of like, you know, me going up against Warren Buffett uh, in some sort of auction. I mean, you know, sure, it's possible I could win, but it's not likely. Uh, so, you know, you, you have a situation here where I think some, some of the, you know, some, some of the examination uh, of whether or not there's a level playing field in banking today uh, should be uh, topics of discussion. Um, one thing that I'd like to point out is, you know, we we reported this last week. There was a there was a plan uh, amongst First Republic's advisors to try to remain independent, and that involved, you know, convincing the big banks, especially, to you know to uh, to purchase bonds off of the balance sheet to essentially help heal First Republic's balance sheet, um, extended another lifeline, uh, and that would allow it to raise raise equity, recapitalize, um, and you know, J.P. Morgan and the other big banks uh, couldn't be convinced to do this. Uh, they wait a few days, um, and it indeed goes into receivership, uh, as they suspected, uh, because regulators had, had been hinting this, you know, for the past few weeks. Goes into receivership. JP Morgan wins this option against other banks in which it, it totally, uh, it dwarves the size of the, of the other banks that it was up against. Um, and it now gains two and a half billion dollars, uh, you know, in, in accounting right off the bat. It gains $500 million um, in, you know, annual net income. And okay. also importantly, as analysts have pointed out, it gains a wealth, uh, you know, a wealth franchise called $300 billion in assets under management, which it probably really coveted. And so, you know, there, there is some uh, material here to, to look back and examine, should this have been conducted this way? Why was it conducted differently than the auctions for SVB and Signature that went exclusively to small banks? All right. So it seems like it's just a net win for J.P. Morgan. But I want to ask you about the rest of the regional banking sector. Looking at the KRE right now, down almost three percent this week, despite what Jamie Dimon said yesterday, saying that the crisis is effectively over. Are there still more concerns about regional banks and what could possibly be the next regional bank to fail? Yeah, Frank, there's a wide variance of opinion on this. And I have to say, you know, um, there are other banks with unrealized losses on their balance sheet. Uh, there is a difference of opinion on whether or not they'll have time to heal their balance sheet over the next few quarters or whether or not there'll be actual pressure. Now, I think it's helpful to remind yourself what instigated, um, you know, essentially the fatal runs on, on these banks last month. And it was, uh, you know, an excess of deposits. So some of these banks, um, you know, the reported 1Q earnings have said that since the quarter ended, they've actually received a lot more deposits. Deposits have come back in. They're able to convince customers to, to return some of their cash. So I would say as long as you have a situation in which deposits remain stable or gaining, you're not going to actually have, you know, the instigating factor to set off a further bankrupt. So, you know, we should watch this. We're going to be on top of this. It's a dynamic situation. But that's how I look at things, Frank. All right. Hugh Sun, great reporting as always. Hugh, always great to have you on board. Thank you. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, an improving road ahead for Uber. Our next guest is bullish on the ride-sharing giant stock as it gears up for its latest quarterly results. We have that and much, much more when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet where we check on the, this morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades 
by firms you know and stocks that you likely own. First up is Citi downgrading Coinbase's rating and price target from buy high risk to neutral high risk and from $80 per share down to $65 per share. It says there were just too many unknowns right now around regulatory pressures that are facing Coinbase. You can see shares are down almost a percent and a half in the pre-market. Also, Morgan Stanley upgrading its rating and price target on Dell from equal weight to overweight and from 45 bucks to 55 bucks per share. It says that Dell is the most preferred U.S. PC maker with that market forming a bottom. All right, we're also watching shares of Uber this morning as the company gears up to report first quarter earnings in just about an hour. It's been a really strong year for Uber so far, up more than 30 percent year to date as Wall Street looks for continued improvement in the ride sharing giant's mobility business, along with any potential impact that inflation has had on its delivery segment. The results coming as rival Lyft, which laid off 26 percent of its staff last month following a C-suite shakeup, really continues to struggle to keep up with Uber in market share and consumer preference within the U.S. rideshare market. Join me now to discuss Tom White, D.A. Davidson Senior Research Analyst. Tom, great to have you here. Thanks. Good morning. All right, so Tom, what are you expecting from this report coming up in just about an hour? How big of a story will inflation and rising rates be for Uber? Yeah, so look, I I think as far as the first quarter results, uh, we're expecting a strong quarter. Uh, You know, the company reported their four key results uh, in February, got a pretty good look at how the quarter was at that point, uh, the business accelerated. I think quarter's going to be good, good. All eyes are going to be on the guidance. Uh, you know, we're starting to hear in other parts of our coverage universe about uh, how rising inflation and macro pressures are, are starting to impact the consumer uh, a bit more. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the recent uh, kind of activity at Lyft that you touched on uh, will raise investor questions as to maybe we're going to see a little bit of a increased intensity in the competitive environment in the U.S. rideshare business. So I think all eyes are going to be on the outlook. Yeah, we'll get to Lyft in a minute, but I, I want to continue on this thread about inflation and where the consumer is right now. Which part of Uber's business do you see being more impacted by a consumer spending slowdown? Because we keep hearing about this shift from goods to services. Technically, isn't food delivery and also rideshare, aren't those services? Yeah. So, you know, I think it, it really if we do start to see impact on Uber's business, it's going to be it's going to be broad based. Uh, you know, this this resiliency in, in services spending that you touched on uh, certainly is going to help Uber. But uh, could you start to see signs of, of folks uh, trading down? Maybe is the way I would describe it. So, uh, you know, maybe not taking the Uber XL, uh, you know, taking the Uber X, uh, you know, if. If it's a, a shorter ride, maybe opting to take the subway, uh, whereas, you know, maybe, you know, eight to 12 months ago, they, they might have taken the Uber. Uh, and food delivery, um, you know, I think it's just people uh, sort of resisting the fees, uh, and, and that'll just sort of serve to uh, accelerate the normalization of that business, right? The, the delivery business had such a go-go period kind of during the course of the pandemic. It's been resilient here as the, as the economy's reopened. Uh, but I think, you know, rising inflation and, and macro pest pressures might just kind of accelerate that normalization that we're seeing in delivery. All right, let's talk about the competitive landscape. So Uber has about three quarters of the market. Lyft has about a quarter rough, give or take. I think that shifts, you know, season to season, if you will. Um, Lyft's made a lot of changes to the company, including layoffs and reorganization. Does that have the potential to change the competitive landscape at all? Yeah, you know, we'll see. Uber has benefited from, uh, I'd say, a, a very sanguine kind of competitive dynamic in U.S. rideshare over the last several quarters. Uh, 
and 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 that's uh, you know played right to Uber's strengths. As you said, they've been uh, eating into uh, market share uh, by competitors. Uh, Lyft is look seemingly going to make some big changes here. Uh, you referenced the job cuts. Those cuts are going to fund, we think, uh, lower uh, investments and lower prices for riders. Probably more aggressive incentives for drivers to make sure that you know wait times for riders and the overall kind of customer experience for Lyft riders is better. Uh, so you know it, it's probably a little bit too early to say that um, you know Uber's uh, going to see an impact you know right now, uh, but it's possible that it's you know they, they could factor that into the second quarter guidance or the outlook for the rest of the year. So uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not what Lyft's doing is going to is going to make. Uh, an impact. Uh, Uber has a ton of momentum, though, uh, in not only in rideshare, but the fact that they've got a multi-product platform. We think that's really like the the key long-term thing that investors need to appreciate here at Uber. It's not just rideshare. It's not just delivery for you know restaurants. Even it's uh, it's you know uh, retail, grocery, uh, alcohol okay. delivery. Uh, all of these things Tom, are just creating a very liquid, there. Yeah. Tom White of DA Davidson. Thank you very much. Watching for Uber earnings coming up in just about an hour. All right. Following those results, don't miss a first on CNBC interview with Uber CEO Dara Karashawi on Squawk Box. That's this morning at 7.30 a.m. Eastern. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today. We're bracing for the Fed. Defiance ETF Sylvia Jablonski lays out why the coming days could be a bit rocky for investors. But first, CNBC is celebrating Asian-American and Pacific Islander heritage throughout the month of May. We're sharing the stories of influential AIPI business leaders. Here is Glow Recipe co-founder and CEO, Christine Chang. It's been incredibly rewarding to build Glow Recipe together with Sarah, my co-founder. We know that female co-founder duos are unique in the industry. And it's been an honor for us to leverage our heritage and be able to storytell around how skincare should be this beautiful, joyful, sensorial self-care experience. My advice for other AAPI founders would be to take up space. Don't minimize your achievements. Don't be afraid to ask for more. Ask often and advocate for your achievements. You deserve to shine. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you need to know before the opening bell. We begin with President Biden reportedly calling the top four congressional leaders late yesterday for a May 9th emergency meeting at the White House to discuss how to avert a U.S. debt default. This after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned the U.S. could hit its borrowing limit as early as June 1st. Morgan Stanley is reportedly making plans to cut another 3,000 jobs by the end of June. This is Wall Street looks to outlast the recent drop in dealmaking. The Reserve Bank of Australia overnight raising interest rates by 25 basis points. The hike surprising investors as inflation in Australia had been easing as of late. Shares of Chegg plunging double digits on a warning that ChatGPT is threatening the growth of its homework helper services. The company says revenue is in danger if students see AI chatbots as an alternative to paying for its subscription service. And it's not just Chegg. Industry peer Pearson also getting hit on the Chegg warning. Looking at shares of Pearson this morning down almost 8%. HSBC shares popping. The company says it will buy back as much as $2 billion in stock after reporting first quarter results that easily topped estimates. The bank also says it will resume paying quarterly dividends for the first time since 2019. And a group of bipartisan lawmakers are urging regulators to require Chinese fast fashion giant Sheen to disclose potential forced labor practices ahead of its possible U.S. IPO. All right, we're gearing up for the trading day ahead here. We got the monthly job openings and labor turnover survey or the JOLTS. 
That's out at 10 a.m. Eastern as our March factory orders. We also have Pfizer, Marriott, Uber, Ford, AMD, and Starbucks all reporting their earnings today. And, of course, the Fed begins a two-day policy meeting with the decision expected tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern, followed by Jay Powell's news conference at 10.30 p.m. Eastern time. And with all that in mind, let's bring in Sylvia Jablonski. She's the CEO and CIO and co-founder of Defiance ETF. Sylvia, always great to see you. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Great to be here. All right. So, Sylvia, every day we ask Wall Street's brightest minds to share the word they believe will describe the trading day ahead. Sylvia Jablonski, what's your WEX word of the day and why? <laughs> I have a funny one for you. So a conjectural. I, I think that much of the market activity this week is going to feel conjectural. You know, there's there's a lot of um, decisions being made based on sort of fear and uncertainty and, you know, guessing about what the Fed is going to do and whether or not we're going to have a hard landing, whether or not earnings are going to surprise to the upside or downside. And I think a lot of investors are kind of sitting on their hands and potentially for the wrong reasons. All right. So we have a lot of big earnings today. You know, Pfizer, Uber, we just listed them off. But you're actually looking at one later this week, Apple, which is obviously the biggest of all the tech earnings. Give us a sense. Give us a sense of where you're putting money in today ahead of those earnings. And and what do you expect from those Apple earnings? Yeah. So in terms of Apple, I think that Apple is actually going to have a pretty good quarter. I suspect that they will anyway. I think that iPhone revenues are going to hold up. And I think they'll probably tell us that they had some sense of recovery from their services number. So I like Apple. I tend to buy it on the dips. You know, if if Fed Chair Powell comes out and speaks in a very hawkish way, we usually see that stock pulling back. It's one of the market leaders. So whenever we get these pullback days, I actually end up picking up some Apple dollar cost average into it. And I plan to hold it for years. I just think that they're going to participate in so many ways. You have Apple TV, you have the devices, you know, you have um, potential revenue from ad spend. They're going to play a, a role in AI. There's just so much that they do. Strong balance sheets, um, revenue generating company. And tech has actually done a lot better than, than feared this, this earnings season so far. And you're also keeping your eye on tech. You gave us a few ETFs that you're putting money in now ahead of what you believe is going to be an Apple beat. One of them, the XLK, the VGT, and also the triple Qs. Why are you bullish on these in particular? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's sort of the classic why, why an ETF versus a single stock. So I think that if Apple performs well, it'll give a boost to other tech companies. But yet you get the benefit of Apple. So Apple has about a 20 percent position or higher in a lot of the ETFs that you just mentioned. And then I think from that, you know, a lot of the other names in there, like the Microsofts and the Googles, will, will also benefit and, and you get a better sort of distribution there on your returns. Um, and I also think Apple could put could potentially, you know, move the semiconductor stocks, right? Because I think if, if they have a role in AI, you know, you think about the machine learning and the quantum, and I would look to some of those names as well. All right, Sylvia Jablonski, great to have you on as always. Appreciate the insight. Thanks, One more Frank. quick check of the futures before we let you guys go. Looking at the futures right now, pretty much flat. The NASDAQ just fractionally higher. The S&P and the Dow both fractionally lower. Something to watch as we continue the trading day that's ahead of us. And that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. we got Squawk Box coming up next. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 